Thank you, George, and a very warm welcome to everyone. It's really good to be back with you all on another Sunday Sunday evening on Zoom. We've got very used to this, haven't we, over the, the last months. Um, I'm just going to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into the discussion. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, so much for the opportunity to gather together in this way and to think about um, some really important issues throughout the course of this series. Lord, this uh, issue we're looking at tonight, um, the issue of how uh, Lord, you think about women, how you relate to women is particularly pertinent in our culture. So we just ask for real wisdom as we think this through. I just pray particularly for Jim. Uh, Lord, give him wisdom and discernment as he speaks. Help Rachel as she asks him questions. And Lord, I pray that we might leave uh, this event uh, loving you more deeply, uh, knowing uh, better your heart and love uh, for women. Uh, Lord, having an appreciation for who you are, but realizing at the same time that, uh, Lord, the Christian faith is is countercultural in many ways, uh, Lord. And I just pray that we will uh, love one another um, throughout this time and throughout this discussion um, and ultimately uh, love the Lord Jesus more deeply and be conformed more fully to his image. So we ask for your blessing upon uh, this time and upon our conversations in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. Um, so our series, uh, our five-week series, has the kind of overall heading, Is Christianity Oppressive? And just to kind of think back to our first couple of conversations, we thought about uh, the basic idea that Christianity is an oppressive force in society and almost creates a, a prison house environment that restricts people's freedom and maybe restricts them living authentic lives. Uh, and then last week, we thought about how some scholars are promoting this new way of interpreting the Bible, um, and that way uh, seeks to overcome a lot of the conflicts between the Bible's view on things like sexuality um, and our culture. And that new, new interpretation basically claims, or that new, new way of interpretation basically claims that we can pick and mix different bits of the Bible, bits that kind of suit our culture, cultural situation we can keep, and those bits that don't, we can kind of throw away and forget about them. And we then assemble a form of Christianity that kind of fits very neatly with our own prevailing culture. Um, and that's something that has become increasingly prevalent. In tonight's conversation, we're going back to the basic argument that Christianity in general, and the Bible in particular, oppresses us. Um, think again about that prison house uh, type environment that forces minority groups in society to conform to its social norms. A lot of people feel that that's what the Bible does, that's what Christianity does. Um, and as a group, we're going to think about that, particularly in relation to women. Does the Bible oppress women? So rather than just having two men uh, think through that question. The ministry committee thought it would be good to have a woman to ask some of those hard questions. So tonight, my wife is sitting beside me here, Rachel, and um, she is very kindly agreed to grill Jim Crooks for the next 20 minutes or so. And then after we've sung a final hymn, I'm going to bring a short reflection on this subject, uh, as we've done uh, in, in the previous kind of evenings. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Just before Rachel begins, I think actually Jim has had a has had a little power cut. I'm just getting a message through. So we'll actually go into our first hymn at this point, and then hopefully, if Jim returns, um, and I'm I'm praying he does, otherwise Rachel will be asking me these questions. Um, hopefully, if Jim returns, then we'll start the discussion. But let's let's sing our first hymn, um, which I believe is King of Kings. Am I right? Let's just jump to it. Jesus, your name. Our first name is Jesus, your name. So let's uh, let's sing that together, and then hopefully we'll get into the conversation. Okay, <laughs> I've just had a call from Jim, and apparently he's sitting in darkness at home and has had a power cut. So um, what we're going to do is I'm going to go straight into the reflection that I was going to share at the end, and uh, hopefully by the end of that, Jim. Uh, we'll be able to join us. If not, we may have to delay the discussion until next week. Um, but 
I am aware of, of some of the things Jim was going to say. And one of the, the points that he was going to make was to talk about how Jesus interacts with women, uh, particularly in John's gospel. And so in my reflection, I kind of wanted to pick up on that a bit and just think a little bit about how the Lord Jesus interacts with women with a view to then understanding um, how, how God thinks about women. So in, in John 14, um, Philip asked Jesus to show the disciples the Father. And this is the way Jesus responds. He says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And I think this is so crucial for a discussion uh, like the one um, that we're having or will have at some point, um, because it means the way Jesus treats women is the way God, the Father, treats women. The way Jesus values women is the way God values women. And so with that in mind, I want to look at two incidents in John's gospel that will give us some insight into the way Jesus interacted with and related to women. So if you have a Bible with you, it'd be really good if you could open it up and just follow with me. Uh, Firstly, in John 6, John chapter 6, and I'm not going to read the whole of this section. We may jump a few verses at some points. Uh, But I want to read quite a bit of it just to get a sense of the interaction that went on. So John 6, and we'll start reading at verse 4. Now he, that's Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Um, And let's jump on to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I absolutely love that story. I absolutely love that interaction. Um, But right from the outset, this incident would have shocked an ancient reader. 
In fact, the Samaritan woman herself is shocked. Just look again at what she says in verse nine. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And the gospel writer John then provides us with some helpful context for that statement. And he follows it up with uh, saying, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But it wasn't just the fact that she was a Samaritan that was shocking. It was the fact that she was a woman. Uh, Did you see how the the disciples react when they return from their shopping trip into town? Uh, Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They're taken aback, and they're also, I think, super awkward about the situation. You can imagine them standing around, awkwardly looking down at their feet, not wanting to ask questions, but also having loads and loads of questions in their heads. Not only was Jesus speaking to a Samaritan, not only was he speaking to a Samaritan woman, but he was also speaking to a Samaritan woman who was likely a social outcast in her own community. The fact that she was coming to the well alone when the sun was at its hottest is a testament to that fact. And when we learn about the details of her relationships, we begin to get a sense of why that might have been. So here Jesus risks awkward reactions from both the Jews and the Samaritans alike by interacting with her. But I love the fact, and this is really characteristic of Jesus, that he's not bothered at all by what people think of him. He's not concerned about the kind of awkward glances or comments he's going to get. What he cares about is this woman. He cares deeply for her as an individual. This is a woman made in the image of God, desperately lost and searching. And Jesus sees that. And he does what he always does for sinners. He forfeits his own reputation so that she might have hope, the hope of salvation, of restoration, and the satisfaction that she desperately craved. And time and time again, we see the Lord Jesus, this perfect man, humbling himself for the sake of the undeserving. And Jesus knows her individual needs and desires. And I think that's such a powerful thing. He sees her as an individual. He understands her circumstances absolutely. And he treats her with the respect and a dignity that many others in that day wouldn't have given her, especially given her messed up sexual past. She'd had five five husbands, and the guy she was with now wasn't even her husband. And the shame of even being associated with someone like that would have been too great for a lot of people, but not for Jesus. He has compassion on her. And he knows her circumstances better than anyone. He's not afraid to ask um, about them and to get her to face up to the sinful mess of her life. But he doesn't do it in a kind of judgmental, harsh way. He brings up the sin and the messiness of her life in the context of holding out grace to her, this living water he speaks about. And he talks of this living water, which will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And when we think about this woman's life, it becomes clear that she'd been drinking from the fountain of sexual desire. She'd been pursuing meaning and security and relationships, uh, relationships with these men who who'd let her down over and over again. And here was her life almost represented in that empty water jar she brought along with her. It was a shell. There was nothing in it. And that fountain had had never quenched her thirst. And in fact, maybe she'd just about given up hope. In fact, why even bother marrying the guy she was with now? He'd probably be just like the rest of them and cast her aside and break her already battered heart once again. But what I love about this account is here before her stands a man who's different, a man who wasn't trying to woo her like all these other men had been, a man who wasn't offering her the same dirty water that she'd been drinking. Instead, there stood a man who offered her the kind of water she'd never tasted before, a water that was going to quench the deepest thirst of her weary soul. And here was a man who for the first time wanted to give to her and not take from her. Here was a man who wanted to cover her shame rather than add to it. And I love that. I love that that's the way Jesus interacts with a woman like this. Jesus reveals to this dear woman that he is the long-promised Messiah, God's anointed deliverer, and that the satisfaction that she desperately longed for could be found in him. And we read and we come to understand that she drank of that water Jesus offered. 
In fact, she leaves that water jar at the well, that symbol of an empty life of, uh, of water that never fulfilled her. She leaves it behind and she heads to the town. And even the fact she heads to the town in that way, I think is significant. You know, she'd been out at the heat of the day wanting to avoid people. You know, the awkwardness of encountering people who were going to look at her and, and judge her. You know, her whole identity was bound up in her broken sexual past. But she's not bothered about her insecurities anymore. She's not bothered to be seen in public because she's not consumed by shame anymore. Christ has taken her shame, has covered her shame, and her identity is in him. The one who treated her as a unique individual made in the image of God, the one who knew her like no one else did, or as she puts it herself, I love her testimony, as she addresses the townspeople in, in verse 29, she says this, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And I think that's such a revealing statement. You know, Jesus knew her. Jesus got her. You know, a lot of men, and I speak for myself, they don't really get women. They don't really understand women. I struggle sometimes to even understand my wife, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but Jesus understood this woman deeply. He got her fully. And that was powerful to her. That was a powerful testimony to her that he was the Messiah. So that's the first instance I want to just address. And, and hopefully some of those thoughts just reveal a little bit of God's heart for women. The second instance I want to refer briefly to comes from John 20. So if you do have a Bible, do flick on a few chapters to John chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 18 of John 20. I'll just give you a moment or two to to flick onto that. Brilliant. Okay, so let's let's start reading at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked a woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked a woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I think this is a, a beautiful, hope-filled account. Um, this woman, Mary Magdalene, a woman whose life had been dominated by evil. We, we know that she'd been possessed by seven demons. Uh, she's had her life utterly and completely transformed by this man, Jesus Christ. This woman, prior to meeting Jesus, wouldn't have had any hope for the future. But now she's the first eyewitness to a history-making event, the greatest event in history, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel account, she's mentioned by name more than most of the apostles. I think that's a, a remarkable transition from a woman without hope to a woman whose name is recorded so many times throughout the scriptures. So what does this encounter tell us about how Jesus thought about, interacted with women? Well, to begin with, it shows that he wasn't afraid to give women prominence in a society that so often disregarded and disrespected them. I've alluded to this previously, but in first century Palestine, women were treated as second-class citizens. In fact, there's an ancient historian who some of you may have heard of, who wrote not long after these events, uh, called Josephus. And he records that women couldn't even give evidence in a court of law uh, due to, and I quote, the levity and temerity of their sex. So given that backdrop, if you were trying to provide a you know, compelling evidence for the resurrection in that era, it would make sense to have men rather than women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. 
But here's the thing about Jesus. Bigotry and prejudice have absolutely no place in his mind. And he chooses Mary as the, the first person he was going to reveal himself to after the resurrection. And he sees Mary weeping outside his empty tomb. You know, her Lord had been crucified. The one who had given her new life uh, now was dead, or so she thought. And it now appeared his body had also been taken away. And she was in pain. And Jesus saw that and had compassion on her. He saw that her hopes for the future lay in tatters. And so he came to her. And the first words he asked, he asked her were this, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? I found this interesting as I, as I try to reflect upon why these were the first words he spoke to her, because actually he knew why she was crying. He knew uh, who she was looking for. But actually, what I think is, is really beautiful about those questions is he's meeting her in a place of suffering and he's asking her questions rather than giving explanations. He's seeking to understand and empathize with her. And then he calls her by name. He, he says, Mary. And as I thought about that, that, that was the moment that sparked a recognition in her. And as I thought about that, I, th I thought it's remarkable that Jesus knows us by name. Uh, he, he doesn't know you as a Christian in some general sense, but he knows you by name and he understands you better than you understand yourself. And it's that use of her name that sparks recognition, instant recognition in Mary. Uh, you, you probably know that, that when your you know, father or mother or husband or wife calls you by name, often they don't need to say anything else, but you recognize the sound of their voice. And I feel it's a bit like that. This could be no one else. It was her Lord. It was her teacher. And she knew the sound of, the sound of his voice. And almost in an instant, the darkness and the pain are swallowed up in joy and delight. And she clings to him. You can imagine almost her falling at his feet and just clinging on to him. But Jesus actually has a crucial task for her. And I think this is wonderful. And again, it goes back to that point that I feel this section is reinforcing that Jesus uh, sees woman's role as significant and prominent um, in sharing his gospel. And she's commissioned to go and share this news, this news of his resurrection with the brothers, with the male disciples, and to tell them of the coming ascension. So not only did Mary have the privilege of being the first eyewitness to the resurrection, she's now tasked with sharing that vital truth, the truth of what's to come with the apostles themselves. I think that's remarkable. And this shows, I, I think, very clearly just how highly Jesus valued not only Mary, but also women in general. There's a lady called Kathleen Nielsen who, who's written a book on this, this topic, and she puts it like this. From the time his mother Mary proclaimed praise to God for the child conceived in her, to the time Mary Magdalene proclaimed the news of his resurrection from the dead, women were there, right at the heart of the most pivotal events in human history, announcing the events that light up eternity. And I think that's a really profound, really helpful quote. There's so much more that we could say on this topic. There were loads of different instances that came to mind. It was hard just to pick two. Um, the way Jesus cared for his mother as he hung dying on the cross, the way he protected and showered grace on the woman caught in adultery the way he defended Mary of Bethany from the judgment of Simon the Pharisee, the way he wept alongside Mary and Martha, the way he healed and restored the identity of the woman with the issue of blood and, and called her daughter. Over and over again, Jesus shows us God's heart, the Father's heart for women, his deep love for them and his desire that they might know him and in knowing him have eternal life. So as I reflected on those things, I found a real sense of joy. And hopefully those reflections are helpful to you, you guys as well. I'm delighted to see uh, Jim has appeared as a little icon on the screen. Welcome, Jim. Yes, Ollie, can I just check that everyone can hear me okay? We can indeed. Good. Well, that is uh, a relief. I as I you probably explained, I had a power cut. Um, People who live in Kalinchi have their electricity supply delivered by somebody in North Korea, obviously. <laughs> um, uh, so it just, uh, my house is in pitch darkness. So I have moved to my sister. It is rather ironic that um, on a, an evening where we discuss the perceived oppression of women, I've had to run to my big sister uh, <laughs> to help me out. 
Brilliant. Well, Jim, if you're if you're ready, maybe we'll we'll crash yes. on with the with the interview. So just um, before you had a power cut, I was about to ask you a, an opening question, um, and I was going to ask you if you would if you would mind summarizing some of the main attacks uh, made on the Bible um, in terms of this issue of of how women are treated. Would Would you be able to just give us a bit of an overview before you get into the discussion? Yes. Um... I think there are two main lines of attack that that we need to consider tonight. Um, The first comes from uh, what is called critical theory, uh, which divides society into an oppressor on one hand and oppressed minority groups on the other. Uh, On this context, uh, oppressors are white heterosexual men uh, and the oppressed group is women, obviously. The technical term uh, used to describe the uh, oppressive structure that dominates oppressed minorities is the white heteropatriarchy. Um, So anyway, according to critical theory, uh, men have constructed the world to maintain their power over women. It's a man's world. Uh, Men have used language and social norms and the social institutions to keep women down, to repress them and use them as mere instruments that serve the needs of men. Uh, So the crucial thing to understand for tonight is that critical theory reduces society uh, to an endless power struggle. Okay, there's no chance of forgiveness, no option for reconciliation. That's because critical theory reduces everything to, in society to a power struggle. Okay? Now, the second main attack comes from transgender ideology. Uh, and I don't think it unfair to say that in our lifetime, the very concept of womanhood is being undermined. Um, just this week, the NHS stopped using the term breastfeeding and replaced it with the term test feeding. Uh, The NHS claimed that eight out of 10 people could get pregnant within a year of trying. And just think about that. Now, of course, those are relatively trivial examples of how the very concept of gender is being obliterated in society. So the women watching this online event tonight face two immensely powerful attacks on their identity. One attack comes from critical theory and the other um, comes uh, from, from transgenderism. One One attack tells them to engage in an endless power struggle with men who are determined to oppress them. Uh, The other attack seeks to obliterate the category of womanhood altogether. Thank you, Jim. That's a a really helpful overview. Um, And maybe we'll use that kind of summary you've outlined there to structure the conversation that you and Rachel are going to have tonight. Um, So perhaps we should start by examining some of the criticisms made of, of like key biblical texts that relate to women. And then we'll talk about how critical theory and transgenderism are actually attacking and undermining biblical womanhood. Uh, and then after that, we're going to discuss some of the New Testament stuff, maybe some of the things that I've just been talking about uh, in relation to how Jesus uh, interacts with women and maybe some of the uh, criticisms of Paul as well. Um, so that's the plan. But Rachel, over to you and now to, to give Jim a, a grilling. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, we'll, we'll jump right into it, Jim. Um, so most most of the criticisms about the Bible's view of women um, are aimed at the Old Testament. So critics say that the Old Testament treats women as second-class citizens. In the Genesis, Genesis account, the creation of Eve has been described as an afterthought. She is Adam's helper rather than an equal person. Um, critics claim that later on in Genesis, polygamy is, pol- polygamy is permitted by God. Um, because Abraham had more than one wife, and so did Jacob. Um, so how, how can we respond to these criticisms? Uh, well, first of all, good evening, Rachel. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's nice to be interviewed um, uh, by somebody other than Ollie. Um, <laughs> um, well, look, let's start with the Genesis account of Eve, okay? The early chapters of Genesis repeatedly make the point that the male called Adam did not on his own constitute the image of God took both male and female to be in the image of God. The Bible affirms the equal status and dignity of women. In fact, it can be argued that Eve is the pinnacle of creation because the whole creation account is a bit like a crescendo uh, and the end is reached with Adam, is not reached with Adam's creation. In fact, we're told explicitly that that state was not good. So it cannot be said that Eve was some sort of afterthought. Um, As far as the Hebrew term that we translate as helper is concerned, um, remember that Genesis uses that term of God himself. So it clearly is talking about a role and not about innate dignity. So it's a simple fact that the Old Testament repeatedly affirms the equal status and dignity of women and men. Think about the fifth commandment uh, about honouring mother and father. The Romans or the Greeks wouldn't have dreamed of saying, honour your father and your mother. 
But all through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Proverbs, uh, you see both terms being accorded equal respect and status. So that's the foundation, if you like, okay? But you rightly mentioned moments in the Old Testament where men and women departed from that biblical standard. Uh, polygamy is a really good example. I mean, Abraham had more than one wife, uh, and most famously, Jacob had domestic arrangements that really don't bear thinking about. But here we come to a really important principle. Just because the Bible records something, it doesn't mean that it approves of it. I mean, there's a really strong case to be made that polygamy uh, is explicitly forbidden in Leviticus 18. Uh, and you can read up on that argument in a simply fantastic book written by a man called Paul Copen. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? But there's a more obvious argument that can be made without any knowledge of Hebrew. I mean, if you, if you want to find a devastating critique of polygamy, then read Genesis. Just think of the heartache and the misery uh, caused uh, by the tensions between Ishmael and Isaac, whose tensions are with us today, played out in the politics of the Middle East. So just because the Bible records something, it doesn't mean that it approves of it. Okay, Jim, um, that's great. So it's clear polygamy is recorded in the Bible, but it doesn't mean it's right or it's approved by God. And creation wasn't complete until Eve was made, um, and it took both man and woman to be made in the image of God. Sure. Um, but what what about these moments in the Old Testament where God himself stands accused of treating women differently from men? Women weren't allowed in the priesthood. Uh, if a woman had just given birth, she was excluded from corporate worship, um, how, just for a period of time. And how should a Christian woman answer those charges? Well, remember that most men were also excluded from the priesthood. It was only Levites uh, who were permitted to minister in the tabernacle. So it's not just women who were excluded. Most men also were excluded. And I also think there's a specific reason why women were not permitted to act as priests. And that related to the horrors of the Canaanite culture uh, that we discussed last week. The nations that surrounded Israel at that time were obsessed with sex. Their shrines were populated by cultic prostitutes. And for them, adultery was, was fine, provided it was religious adultery. I remember I brought on for quite a while last week about the rise of monotheism. Uh, and one of God's most difficult tasks was to persuade his people that he was not just another nature god. He was in a different category from his creation. Now, how was he to teach people that? Well, if a man buried his father, for example, and touched the dead body, then he became ceremonially unclean. Or, uh, to use the example you gave, if a woman gives birth to a child, she became ceremonially unclean for a while. Now, there's absolutely nothing morally wrong with burying the dead or giving birth. But they are human activities. It is we humans who are born and who die. And God was undoing all that pagan nonsense in his people's minds uh, that sought to blur the distinction between God and humanity. So that's why women were excluded from the tabernacle for a while after they had given birth. God's people were learning what transcendence means. Brilliant, Jim. Okay, so that that helps because people can confuse uncleanness with sin. But like you said, right. that that's not the case. It was to help God's people distinguish between man and God. Um, some critics like Richard Dawkins quote verses from Exodus that seem at first sight to allow female servants to be bought and sold like a piece of property. Um, how should Christian women defend the Bible against those sorts of criticisms? Yeah, um, I set out a principle earlier which stated that just because the Bible records something, um, it doesn't mean that it approves of it. Now, there's a second principle, uh, which is that some of the laws in the Old Testament were designed as safeguards in a fallen world. So you will find that these difficult verses start with the phrase, if a man, for example. Right. So the point is, God is a realist. The ancient world was a brutal and patriarchal place to live. And so some of his laws were designed to protect women uh, in such a fallen world. So take the case which deals with uh, female prisoners of war. Well, we might say that there should never be prisoners of war. Uh, but war is an inevitability in a fallen world. So God insists that no female prisoner was to be taken immediately as a wife. Both parties had to be given space and time before any marriage could be allowed. Now, that was a protective measure. Another example relates to an unloved wife in a polygamous marriage. She was not to be abandoned. She had to be provided with exactly the same clothing and shelter as the favoured wife. Uh, if a man was so poverty-stricken that his family was about to die, and so he hires out his daughter to work as a chambermaid in some wealthy man's house, then the Old Testament law provided protection for the girl while she was in that home. Now, obviously, God doesn't approve of war 
polygamy or slavery. But God is a realist. And so he creates safeguards for women in a fallen world where war, polygamy and slavery were commonplace. Okay, th- thanks, Jim. That's, that's helpful. Um, when, when we come to the New Testament, there's no doubt that the Lord Jesus treats women with respect. And um, the author Dorothy L. Sayers says, perhaps it is no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female. That's that's a brilliant quote, isn't it? Um, but, but the Apostle Paul comes under a lot of criticism for some of the restrictions he places on women's roles in the church and in the home. Um, so how, how should we respond to those criticisms? Sure. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to suggest we leave Paul out of the conversation um, and, until we have talked about the cultural challenges faced by women in, in our culture. Um, uh, because I think Paul's instructions really only make sense when we view them in that, in that light. But we'll come back to Paul in a few moments. But let's not just step too quickly past the way that the Lord Jesus treated women. Um, I mean, just think of the conversations he had that Ollie has been talking about uh, from John's Gospel. Uh, you know, it's actually really instructive to compare how the founder of Christianity dealt with women with how the founders of Islam and Buddhism uh, treat women. Now, I don't want to be disrespectful to other religions, but there's a simple fact that the Prophet Muhammad said some very problematic things about women. He called them the snares of the devil. He commanded that women be put in an inferior position since God had done so. Now, to be fair to the prophet, he did act to protect females and forbade the killing of infant girls, for example. Um, so anyway, the Lord Jesus' attitude to women is uniquely respectful and sensitive. Um, he, he understood how women think and feel, and he always treated them with dignity and honor. And here's the point. History proves that assertion to be true. Um, I was driving like a mad thing, so Ollie may have said this already, so forgive me uh, if I'm repeating it. But there's a mountain of evidence that uh, women find in Christianity a safe refuge in the ancient world. The Apostle Paul is often accused of being some sort of misogynist. Um, But the churches he founded and taught attract thousands and thousands of women into the Christian faith, a good number of them intelligent, wealthy professionals. It is a straightforward historical fact that Christianity gave dignity and status to women, which Greek and Roman culture never did. Some scholars estimate that up to 70% of Paul's churches were made up of women. Now, that historical fact is is, uh, asserted by some of Christianity's fiercest critics. Um, Simone de Beauvoir, who was one of the founder members of the feminist movement, says it was Christianity, paradoxically, paradoxically, that was to proclaim the equality of man and woman. Uh, She is God's creature, redeemed by the Savior, no less than is a man. He takes her place beside the men. Now, before I leave this point, I, I want to make an admission here, and I'm just giving it a personal opinion. Um, so it's not backed by church policy or anything like that. But I, I have changed my mind on a slightly controversial issue within evangelicalism, and I'm going to offer it up to you uh, for your own personal consideration. Uh, I, I have never historically had much time for so-called gender-neutral versions of the Bible. Um, so when Hebrews says that God is bringing many sons to glory, uh, we don't have the right to change that to bringing many sons and daughters because in scripture, the term son has a very specific meaning. It refers to the idea of an heir. But there are times when the NIV has retranslated Paul's use of the term brothers to be brothers and sisters. And I, I have gone away and thought about this and scratched my head. And, and I now personally think that that longer phrase, brothers and sisters, is the correct translation because the original Greek term is gender neutral. And so in that one specific case, I personally think it's right to talk about brothers and sisters. Um, I think it helps us hear the Apostle Paul's voice in a more authentic way. And of course, you may come to a different conclusion. Uh, But I think in the current climate, it's important that we use inclusive language when and only when the original text allows us to do so. Great, Jim. Um, Ollie mentioned earlier, just at the start of this conversation, that there are two main attacks on biblical womanhood. And the first comes in the form of critical theory, and the second comes from transgenderism. Um, So we'll start with critical theory. Um, How does that say that the Bible oppresses women? Okay, let's do that. Um, Feminists use critical theory as their grand narrative. It's an overarching framework which women are to use to make sense of their lives. Uh, And the story is the story of a journey from repression to freedom. 
feminism calls women to leave the prison house of a patriarchal society and make the journey to personal autonomy. Now, according to critical theory, the Bible's sexual ethic um, and its emphasis on the nuclear family uh, has created a set of social norms, if you like, social norms which men use to keep women in chains. Um, we're told it is the Bible which has crushed any behavior outside of its ethical framework by labeling it as deviant. So think of linguistic terms like adultery, illegitimacy, abortion, lesbianism. Um, feminists would say uh, that this language was invented by the heteropatriarchy to describe non-conformist activity as deviant and criminal. And then men have used Christian ethics to impose their own sense of normality on oppressed groups like women. Okay. And, and it's not just the biblical ethics that critical theory has a problem with. Um, it's the very notion of God as father, as God the father, that's seen as oppressive, isn't it? Yes. I mean, uh, contemporary feminists argue that Christianity has made the male divine. Uh, Christianity ta has taught us, they say, that God is male. Um, therefore, man, male is God. Um, feminists like Rachel Held Evans um, assume that we have the right to rename God. So they, um, I mentioned her last week, didn't I? I mean, they, people like Rachel regard the creedal name of God as uh, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a projection of imagery into God. It's just a cultural thing. And um, today we can create our own projection, uh, leaving the old names behind. Now, that, of course, is all untrue. Uh, when we call God our Father, we're not projecting a human construct back into God as the other way around. One of the ways the triune God has helped us understand him uh, is through the relationship between a human father and, and son. Um, creation was designed to give us categories that would, would help us understand the inner life of the creator. Now, the attack on God the Father is outrageous because the consistent witness of the Bible is that God has a particular interest in the welfare of the oppressed. And the way society treats vulnerable women, like widows, is something that God watches with particular attention. And just think of how God treats Hagar or Ruth or Hannah uh, to see that God's deepest instinct is to stand with the oppressed and the powerless. Um, for, for moving from critical theory, Jim, um, we're going to look at the second big attack, um, which comes from transgenderism. Um, so we all know that there's an internal, internal war being waged just now within the feminist movement between those who see feminism as a struggle for women in an unfair world and those who want to abolish gender's distinctiveness altogether. Um, so old-fashioned feminists like Jermaine Greer and Julie Burkle um, have been new platformed on university campuses, so they're not allowed there, um, by the transgender community. They've been labelled as T-E-O... In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says that the woman will be saved through childbearing. Okay? <laughs> he isn't talking about individual women there. Uh, he's saying that the very concept of womanhood will only be saved once biological essentialism is embraced. Break the link between biology and personhood, and the very concept of a woman disappears. And we're seeing that happen before our eyes. Um, the United Nations uh, just uh, published a tweet um, earlier this afternoon um, repeating seven times, there is no wrong way to be a woman. So this is happening in our society as we speak, Rachel. Uh, the very concept of being a woman is under threat. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard you, you say that on that verse, Jim, and I, I think it's a really helpful point. Um, okay, so we've thought about critical theory and we've thought about transgenderism. Um, and in the light of those two threats, how are we to make sense of the Apostle Paul's instructions to women, instructions that cover both home life and church life? Um, so first, 1 Corinthians 14, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. And he goes on to say, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that he wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer. But then he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Um, so how, how can those instructions not be seen as oppressive or restrictive to women? Well, I wanted to hold off uh, talking about those verses until we had discussed the, um, the attacks that we're facing from wider society. Because 
Arthur, many evangelicals see these verses as the ground of a sort of internal bonfight between traditionalists and progressives. Now, I'm going to be honest here, Rachel, and say that for many years, I really struggled to make sense of those verses. Now, of course, we should obey Scripture, even if we don't understand the reasons why the command is there. But the recent attacks on the very concept of womanhood from critical theory and transgenderism explain, I think, what the Apostle Paul is up to. Now, in case um, anyone thinks I'm post-rationalizing Paul's thought here, I just want to point out that the culture in places like Corinth and Ephesus was actually pretty similar to our own when it comes to human sexuality. Most of Paul's churches had to live in a culture that had a seriously confused understanding of sexuality. Uh, in fact, some of the founder members of the Church of Corinth were from the city's gay community. Paul tells us that himself. Um, and, and although there was no such thing as feminism in the ancient world, we do find the same underlying contempt for uh, the role of wife and mother in both the ancient and modern societies. So Paul's world and our world are alarmingly similar in some ways. So let's let's go back to transgenderism. In a culture that is seeking to obliterate gender as a category, Okay, in a world where male to female transsexuals will win every sports prize in women's events, in a world where a man can be prosecuted for hate speech simply by defining a woman as an adult female, a world like that, where is the church to make a stand? Well, one way is that when we come together formally to worship God, we choose to model creatorial order by modeling gender distinctiveness. We hold out the beautiful moral vision of womanhood and manhood. Um, in other words, we make the point that the Lord Jesus makes in Matthew's gospel when he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Yeah, I think many Christian women um, will get that point. But why must we show gender distinctiveness by not teaching or leading? Why must we show a submissive attitude and support the idea that only men teach the Bible during corporate worship or lead the church? Well, the first thing to say is that Paul's instruction could not be more inflammatory. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, well, you know, why did he not say that women should dress in blue and men dress in red? Well, obviously, a career in the fashion industry awaits me. Well, anyway, you get the point. You simply could not devise a symbol of gender distinctiveness more, more uh, in, in anything that would wind up the progressive left more than that. Um, it's, it's just so inflammatory for the progressive left to see an intelligent woman sitting quietly in a pew while a man teaches from the pulpit. It just seems outrageous. And that obviously, I suggest, is the Apostle's point. Think again about critical theory. Critical theory reduces all of life to a desolate struggle for power. The way to solve oppression is to gain enough political power to overthrow the oppressor. The whole thing is about power. Nah. Answer me this. How did God solve the problem of oppressive power structures in the unseen kingdom? Did he use power? No. He didn't arrive in this earth as a military general or a political leader. He was known as the carpenter's son. He lived outside the power structures of the kingdom of this world. And by oppression, he was taken away, says Isaiah. In the end, the political oppressors did him to death. Colossians tells us that it was the cross which disarmed the powers and authorities that have oppressed this world since Adam and Eve sinned. You see, Christianity has a much better answer to oppression than critical theory. Time and time again, Paul argues that Christ subverted worldly power through obedience. And it is that utterly radical, daring idea that Christian women model every time they sit in church and support the idea that they willingly walk the path of submission. It is the answer to critical theory. Great, Jim. So, so let me understand. Um, you're saying that Christ conquered death, not by political power or might, but by being obedient, obedient to death on a cross. Um, and it's that obedience that women model within corporate worship in that way. Exactly. Now, of course, Paul's restrictions only apply three hours a week. Um, the women in our church teach and lead in many ways in church life. Um, we need always to distinguish between the formal meetings of the entire church when we come together to worship and learn and the informal life of the church that operates Monday through Saturday and, and most of Sunday. But my, my main point here, Rachel, is that it is the women of the church who can speak meaningfully uh, into our society at this time. Most members of the progressive left would look at me on a Sunday and just see a white man in a pulpit and all they hear is blah, blah, blah. I mean, to be honest, that's why I get so upset when Christian pastors like John MacArthur make controversial statements from their pulpits. Because it's really easy to sound strong from a pulpit. The real battles take place in 
the workplace and school staff rooms and school classrooms. The two groups of Christians on the front line in this culture are women and 14-year-old teenagers. Now, to put that positively, think about the impact a woman can have on this society. So let's imagine a member of the progressive left attends our church on a Sunday. They see a white man usually going blah, blah, blah from the pulpit. But then they are outraged to see a vibrant, intelligent, thoughtful woman sitting quietly in a church pew, and her curiosity gets aroused. And at that point, you can tell them that you are modeling the most subversive, the most radical solution to humanity's problems. You are modeling the obedience of Christ. Because power is subverted through obedience. The scandal of a woman remaining silent in church is derived from the scandal of the cross. And every true Christian woman should be honored to bear that offense. So remember, you aren't standing up for some Victorian tradition. You are fighting for the future of womanhood. This culture is determined to reduce you to a sexualized object or to an angry victim embroiled in an endless power struggle. And eventually, it wants to make the term woman utterly meaningless. So for the sake of your daughters and your granddaughters, you should model the biblical concept of womanhood. I think the Apostle Peter has that great battle in mind when he says to women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Thanks so much, Jim. Um, I'll hand back now to Ollie to, to close. Thank you, Jim. Some really, really helpful stuff there. Um, greatly valued. Um, let's just close with a word of prayer and then we're going to sing our final hymn, which is King of Kings. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you and we give you thanks that um, in the Gospels, uh, we do see this wonderful, radical alternative to what uh, we see in the world around us. Lord, throughout your scriptures, uh, we see the value and the beauty of uh, gender distinctiveness. Lord, we realize this is a good thing. This is something to celebrate. We realize, Lord, that men and women both uh, are made in your image uh, to reflect your glory and your majesty. Uh, Lord, and we realize that uh, this concept of gender distinctiveness is massively under attack in our society. And we just pray that we might be strong as a, a church family um, in clinging to the truth of your word and in holding it up as valuable as uh, the, the right path to human flourishing. And we, I want to pray particularly, Father, for our sisters. Uh, Lord, they do face um, huge challenges from culture. Uh, Lord, and I just want to ask that you might strengthen them and give them confidence in you, Lord. Uh, help them uh, to, to walk this radical path. Um, Lord, it is uh, incredibly difficult for them to... Um, submit to male teaching, male authority, when they are told by culture that that is a sign of oppression. Uh, Lord, that is such a hard thing to do. Uh, and I just want to pray very especially for them as uh, they seek to walk that path. Um, I just want to pray too, Lord, for our teenagers, uh, Lord, growing up in a world that looks so different from uh, many of the principles taught in scripture. I want to ask that you might strengthen them and help them. Uh, Lord, give them uh, courage, uh, Lord, to honor you in a, in a world that increasingly is, is distant and detached from you. So, Father, uh, we ask that you'll bless our conversation with the CY guys now as well, and I pray that, that might be fruitful. Um, and, uh, Lord, bring us uh, back ne next week um, for a full-on conversation that might uh, continue to bear fruit in each of our lives. So, Father, we bring these things before you, uh, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. Let's uh, close uh, by singing King of Kings. <laughs>